This morning, as we uh, today and next Sunday, we will finish uh, our series on the Gospel of Mark that began back in April. And most of those all are online uh, to go back and listen to that. We certainly did not go through every verse and every word, but covered uh, the entire book. And now we're ready to go back and start all over again. But we won't do that. (laughs) I always have that feeling like, okay, now that I understand it, I want to go back and redo it. But we're concluding, uh, next Sunday we'll conclude this series on the Gospel of Mark. And we have done it, especially these latter messages, a little bit out of order because in April when we uh, celebrated uh, the Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and the Sunday before, we dealt with the cross and the resurrection and took those kind of out of order to stay in Mark. So now just been kind of kind of going back and filling in some gaps, filling in some areas uh, for our study to kind of round things out a little bit. And so here, as we read, Jesus is now, Jesus is crucified. He has been uh, convicted through a uh, kangaroo court, uh, through uh, trumped-up charges, and now he has been crucified. He has been sentenced to death and put upon the cross, which was the Roman method of execution. won't go into that, but the crucifixion of a human being was considered the most heinous and the most torturous form of death because of its uh, prolonged torture and agony of the person who hung upon that beam of wood. And uh, if you are uh, game enough for that uh, and want to see what, uh, what, how that affected and how cruel it was upon the body uh, and out in the, in the elements of, of the out, outside, outside the walls of Jerusalem was where uh, Romans put these criminals or people convicted of capital punishment on, on, the, on these crosses. And it was intentional so that as people traveled, it was along a major trade route uh, not far from the Damascus Gate where people traveled. Remember when Jesus was crucified, he, on the inscription that was put above his head, it had three different languages, uh, Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. And so that was, again, as an international road where people would see these criminals of what, as they would enter into or come along the path coming into Jerusalem, they would see these heinous bodies that had been there for you know, days or sometimes, I mean, can you be a grotesque thing? You know, you're you're going to Walmart to buy milk and you have to, you know, pass, uh, uh, you know, just an an unbelievable uh, imagery. But they did it so that it was part of the intimidation, essentially, that you do not mess with Rome. This is what we do to criminals. And so these three individuals, remember, three people were crucified. Just because a person was nailed to a cross in and of itself did not make that any holier. It was the form of execution. Only the man in the middle uh, and, his, uh, and what his life represented on that cross meant anything for us. But there were three people that were crucified that day. We don't know anything about the two on the outside, the two thieves. We don't know any information except what we gather from these passages in the gospel that we read. We don't know. Some people think maybe they were brothers. It doesn't really tell. Uh, but we do know that they were criminals. The Bible says they were criminals. The uh, Mark says they were robbers. Uh, the, the Luke says they were criminals. And the word criminal uh, means that they were part of a 
uh, in, the, in the Greek, that, that word criminal that Luke uses means they were thugs, they were murderers, they were just the wretched, horrible people deserving of their crime. Okay? And so here they are on the outer part of these two crosses. I mean, they were like Jesus. They were probably beaten and scourged and, and uh, disfigured because of the grotesque uh, way that they were uh, almost beaten to death so that in one sense, in kind of the upside-down upside logic, that they would die quicker if we beat them near, you know, beat them to death, they would die quicker. Um, but so they all in that sense, or at least these two, resembled one another. They looked the same. But yet, as we'll see this morning, they are quite different. Quite different. And the difference is, is how they saw Jesus and how and what they asked of Jesus and how they viewed the man in the middle. Because Jesus is the man in the middle and these two criminals on each side of him. One wanted to wanted to escape from his predicament. Uh, he wasn't interested in forgiveness. He wanted to escape. But the other one wanted forgiveness and not necessarily an escape from the consequences of his crime. And so when we see this story, I couldn't help but read this. Really, that's the story of, of humankind, that as we uh, come to that place, we are either on one side or the other of the man in the middle. You with me? We are either with Jesus or we are rejecting Jesus. We are one of the other uh, on each side of how we understand Jesus. So this morning, the title of today's message is, Which Side of the Cross Are You On? What side of Jesus are you on today? And so let's unpack this, and we're going to just kind of move through it a little bit and give some application uh, towards the end there. But let's just kind of walk through it, and we're going to use Luke's version in Luke 23, 49 through 43 to, uh, to make some observations. Notice, first of all, the rage of the thieving sinner, the rage of this one guy. Verse 39 of Luke 27, one of the criminals who were hanged railed or, or yelled at him in kind of a venom, are you not the Christ? And Christ, Christos, that's Greek for the, the equivalent of the, of the word Messiah. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And so just in these, short, these few words, here's a man uh, breaths away from eternity, and what? how is he using his time? Not very good. He is cursing and yelling at the one who can, who can save him for, for eternity. He, his life here on earth is done. He's not coming down. He's not getting off the cross. And so in these moments, these last moments of air, oxygen, life, Instead of looking to Jesus as his only hope and Savior, he's yelling at him curses. And instead of treating Jesus with reverence, repentance, he's on the wrong side of the cross, contempt, sarcasm. You see, he was demanding that Jesus save him on his terms. Uh, Jesus, if you are really the Messiah, get me out of here. Get us out of here. He's not really interested in what, who Jesus is, but just relieve me of my consequences, of my circumstances. And you know what? We can kind of relate to that, can't we? Because we, we kind of do that. Life doesn't treat us fairly. We don't get the right 
you know, shake in life, and we begin to demonstrate our anger with God. God, why have you got me in this mess? If you really love me, you would do this, do that. And then God in his mercy uh, hears us and, 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 and demonstrates mercy and grace, and, and we, are, we, we get a reprieve, we get some help in that circumstance, and what do we do? We just go by, right back to where we were, which reveals kind of uh, our heart. We want practical help from God. We kind of approach God like a genie in the bottle. You know, if I, if I just rub it the right way and then have, have Jesus appear and help me out of my circumstances, and once that happens, okay, get back in the bottle because I need to go live my life the way I want to live it. What kind of relationship do you have this morning? You know, is it Staples that has the, the easy button? That's kind of, you, they could maybe sell that in, in Christian bookstores as one of the trinkets, one of the Jesus junk that a lot of Christian bookstores sell. Uh, they ought to put the easy button there because that is what sometimes or oftentimes we want of Christianity. We want God's easy button. Okay, bing, get me out of my problems doesn't work that way. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only the rage of this thieving sinner, instead of confessing his crimes, he attacked Jesus. But I want you to notice, secondly, the rebuke of the other man, the repentant thief. Remember, there's two convicted felons in this story. Now, we won't turn to it, but Matthew gives us a little insight. That's where we call Matthew, Mark, and Matthew, Mark, Luke. We call those three the synoptic gospels because they parallel in information and details. Some are shorter, some are longer. Uh, John is similar, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke is helpful because, as we said, we start out with Mark, and he gave some details, but Luke helps us and rounds out some things, and Matthew even throws in a few details that Luke didn't, and one of the details that Matthew gives us in his account, we won't won't, uh, turn to it, is that he says that as he is recounting the same uh, story, he says that Uh, that both of them, in the beginning when they were crucified, both of these men on both sides, both of them attacked Jesus and reviled him. You with me? Both of them were angry and cursed and reviled Jesus. Now, something happened to one that didn't happen to the other. Something changed Because what we see here is not the rage of the one man. We see a rebuke of this repentant or this other thief on the other side of the cross. He started out just like this other guy. He started out angry and railed against Jesus, but something took place. Now, both of them, again, are similar. Both of them deserve to die. They were criminals. They were convicted, given capital punishment. We don't have Jesus saying anything or any indication that somehow they got an unfair trial or they were innocent. In fact, they'll even confess their guilt here in a minute. Both of them were adding to their guilt in the beginning, their guilt by abusing and attacking the Son of God. But something took place. Don't miss that. Something happened. To this, and I, I don't know what side either one, but to the one, that didn't happen to the other. Maybe this one in this change, now we know the only change that ever changes a heart 
is how? Spirit of God, right? The Holy Spirit is the only one that can change a person's heart. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can reveal Jesus' true identity of who he is to you and to me. I always think about Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? They all kind of went back and forth. And then Peter said, Thou, because I remember it in the King James, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar-Jonah means, in, means son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out all on your own, but my Father has revealed it to you. That's the only way you or anyone will ever come to a true understanding of who Jesus is, is that God in his electing mercy opens our hearts and our eyes. This guy, when I talk about how he changed, where do we see that? We see in the way that he responded to Christ, the way that he, this attitude was changed. And I would suggest to you this morning that we see a heart change of repentance because of the way he rebuked that other criminal on the other side. Uh, There was something different. Look, Look at verse 40 of Luke 23. It says, but the other rebuked him. He wasn't rebuking Jesus now. He wasn't uh, cursing at Jesus. But now he was saying something to to the other criminal on the other side of Jesus. He says, do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, the same sentence as I am. And he says this, and we, you and me, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. He's not disputing capital punishment or their death sentence. But what does he say? But this man, the man in the middle, has done nothing wrong. Something changed. We see a reverence for God. He says, don't you fear God? Literally, it could read, don't you even fear God? Here was that one criminal on this side cursing at Jesus. And somehow this man's, something is changing in this guy. Here he is, I mean, breaths, breaths from eternity. And he's yelling at that guy saying, don't you even fear God? Now, whether he understood Jesus as God, I don't know. But he somehow is, he's, uh, as Matt Chandler would say, he's tracking with something that was different than 30 minutes before when he's cursing at Jesus. Something is different that's taking place. And not only is there a reverence for God, you see in this rebuke a reverence for Jesus. Jesus. Verse 41, he said, this man has done nothing wrong. Earlier, if you go back in uh, Luke 23, Pilate, you remember what Pilate said? He said, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. That was just a secular, civil observation on these charges. And Pilate, who was kind of the, 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 one of the, the main leaders there in uh, Palestine and Israel at that time, who was a Roman official, he said, look, he said, he, I, I, don't, I can't give him a bunch of bogus charges. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong. You know what? 
is being implied here clearly, we understand it because of uh, the further revelation of Scripture, is that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become what? The, The righteousness of God. This man has done nothing wrong. I'm struck by a couple of observations and illustrations in Scripture. I mentioned Peter for one. If you go, and don't, don't turn to it, but just remember maybe or make a note of it. In Luke chapter 5, you have this account where Peter and the disciples have been fishing all day and all night. Okay, And Jesus tells them to do what? Cast your nets to the other side. And Peter, in his own way, says... Hey, Jesus, look, we're the pros, man. We're the pros. You see, you see these awards, you know, around the boat? I mean, I'm the fisherman. Listen, I'm sure you make a really cool table and chair. And, you know, I've, heard, I've seen your stuff on eBay. I mean, I, I, know, I know. Listen, if I want a table and a chair, if I want something maybe, you know, to decorate the boat or whatever, I'm coming to you, all right? You're, you, but fishing... We've been here all night. So, we, you know, listen, we kind of know this game. But he did it to humor Jesus almost, right? All right. Well, throw it the other side. And I'm sure he's looking at, you know, his brother and like rolling his eyes like, you know, get this. And the Bible says that so much fish got into that because the way they cast those big nets, that so many fish came into that net they had trouble dragging that thing in, and once they did, it began to sink the boat because of the weight. What a miracle. And you would think Peter is just like, just mind-blown. But you know, this is what makes Peter so Peter. The Bible says in Luke 5, verse 8, when Peter saw it, he saw the miracle, it says he fell down. And said to Jesus, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. What did Jesus encounter? He didn't have to be hung on a cross next to Jesus, but he encountered the same revelation that that thief did. He saw Jesus in a purity and holiness that only God can reveal. You see, the reason some of you struggle with sin and purity and discipline in your life is because you've never had a genuine revelation of who Jesus is. He still is a religious figure that you're still trying to work and keep happy with you. You need to pray and say, God, reveal to me Jesus as only you, Father, can show me who he is. Kind of like that revelation, revelation, not the book, but a revealing. Remember in Isaiah 6, one of my favorite passages. The Bible says in Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that I saw King Uzziah, Isaiah is saying this is a problem, in the year that I saw King Uzziah die, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the Bible says his train, and that's not a choo-choo train, that was the referral of the, of the backward part of the robe that, that expressed the, the length and the majesty of his kingship. He said, I saw the train of his robe fill the temple. And he saw these angelic beings surrounding the throne of God. He's seen this. This is a revelation. This is an opening of his eyes. This is not a LSD trip. 
He saw these angelic beings around the throne speaking, singing day and night, holy, holy, holy. And what was his response? Ran out and wrote a book and got on Christian TV about what he saw. No. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. You cannot... You cannot see God in His fullness and His holiness and come away with anything other than I am unclean. These nuts that talk about, I remember reading about some guy that saw Jesus in his mirror when he was shaving. Did you keep shaving? Because if it was Jesus, I guarantee you, you didn't keep shaving. Be wary of people that go around and talk about that kind of nonsense. Because the Bible says, remember Paul said, I know a man, he's really referring to himself, and he talks about this heavenly vision where he went up into heaven and saw all these things that he said, I'm not even able to talk about. And yet we've got a truckload of books in Christian stores about people that take vacations into heaven and see unicorns and all sorts of nonsense and write books and all this baloney And yet here Paul, the apostle, I believe had a real encounter in heaven. And he said, I can't even, I can't even, I can't can't even talk. Be be leery of that. This man saw Jesus, think about it. Now, I don't think Jesus looked very kingly on the outer, do you? He was probably beaten. I saw an old movie on TV, you know, you know, you flip around, you see something. It was one of those, I think it was the, uh, the greatest story ever told. I remember as a little kid, maybe four years old, going to see that movie with my parents at the Woodlawn Theater in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I think I slept through most of it. But you know what I remember? I remember when they, my dad either put me in the back seat without seatbelts, you know, threw me back there and we're all leaving. I remember I was weeping and I said, why did they do that to him? Even as a child, there's something that we see in innocence and a purity of Jesus and say, this man, we we deserve, but this man, he's innocent. Only God can open a person's eyes and hearts to see the revelation. So what was the difference? The difference is, thirdly, the request of this dying convert We saw the rage of the thieving sinner, the rebuke of the repentant thief. But notice, thirdly, the request of this dying convert. See, it's one thing to... Repentance is more than just feeling sorry for sin. One was sorry he was in the mess that he was in. But there's a a godly sorrow the Bible talks about. There's a repentance. And it's, notice with me, verse 42, the thief asked. Jesus says, you, the Bible says, you have not because you ask not. There's some things that are on us to ask. The thief asked, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is the only time that in, the, in Luke that the name that the given name of Jesus, that anybody calls him Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And when you think about it, his name literally means 
God, the, the God that saves. Remember the angel told Joseph, a child will be born and you will give him, Joseph, dad, you will give him the name of Jesus because he will. He won't make it potentially possible. The Bible says he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was not sent on a fool's errand. He was sent to carry out and fulfill the mission of his heavenly father. Look at the differences. One man made a request in angry unbelief. One man made a request in humble faith. One man was not sure whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, so he asked him to prove it. One man knew Jesus could only save him, so he simply asked him, remember me. One man required Jesus to save himself before he saved anyone else. One man somehow, the other man knew that Jesus had to die first, and only then would he rise to his kingdom. One man was hoping for immediate deliverance from physical suffering, a crucifixion. One man was looking for salvation beyond the grave. That one man who saw Jesus in, in, that, in that, that only that understanding that the Spirit of God could give him, he was not asking me, Jesus, deliver me from this capital punishment. You know these Romans are horrible thugs. Show them this, you know, your political... No, he didn't ask for that. He wasn't going to be delivered from capital punishment. But every possibility in Jesus was possible of him being, of him being delivered from eternal punishment. You, might, you will die in this life maybe for consequences of your actions and your sins, but you do not have to die eternally because the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, any whosoever's here? Whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. He believed this. You know, the thing is, when you look at this thief, it isn't that, you know, he kind of came in at the last second, right? Well, you talk about cutting it close, Right? Doug English were talking about you know, talking about airports and his wife getting on the plane delays and things. She's uh, gone today. I remember a day when I could be dropped off of the airport, run through like OJ. You remember those commercials? <laughs> Go through security like okay, I know he's in a hurry. Yeah, I'm strapped with bump. No, you know, just yeah, come on, go through and make the flight. And they might even get a call and saying, we'll hold it for him. Those days are gone, right? And get there at the last second. Yes, it was stressful. Oh, it was stressful to the person that dropped me off. I mean, it was just the whole thing. But, oh, finally, I remember sitting in that seat. Whew, I made it. Not anymore. You go and spend the night, right, at the airport. You go and pitch a tent and bring a couple of meals. I mean, those days are gone. This man dying in his very last breath came to a salvation that only Jesus could provide. He, and, and, and not only did he, he saw him, this is what I think is fascinating, is he sees him as a king. 
I started to say this early, and there's, you know, I mean, he's disfigured. I mean, he's beat, beat. There's probably nothing other than hearing the mockery of the soldiers and their attacks. So if he was a king, king of the Jews, but somehow he saw him not in a, in a fashion of mockery, but he saw him as a king. Only God could reveal his kingship. He saw and understood some kind of expectation of life beyond the grave. What did he say? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know this is done here. But I know there's something happening beyond here. Remember me. This man, it wasn't that he came at the last second. I'm amazed at how much God revealed to him in those moments. And last is the reward of a gracious Savior. Remember me. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't have memory problems? Inscribed on the table, do this in remembrance of me. Those were words Jesus told his disciples. And I always thought, you know, I'd be a little taken back after all that, you know, as a disciple we've been through and everything that Jesus said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Like, what do you mean? We'll never forget you. But Jesus knows us pretty well, doesn't he? He said, all of you are going to forget me before the rooster crows. He knows us well. But when Jesus heard those words, that man could have the surety because of what Jesus said in Luke 23, 43. What did he say? A man said, remember me. Jesus said, truly. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's, I mean, that's, that's gold. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to just put that, that scripture on the screen real quick. He said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that's, a, that's not a very long verse, right? Right? Not a long verse. But as the old uh, writers and Puritans would say, it is pregnant with truth. I want you to see a few things. Notice what Jesus promised him in that verse, that he promised to save the man immediately. What did he say? He said, today. Not somewhere off in the distant future where you'll be buried in a hole and when the resurrection comes, you know, 10,000, whatever year. No, he says today. There's an immediateness. What will happen when I die? The Bible is very clear. The Bible says to be away from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be away from the body, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. The Bible, my friends, does not teach nor imply in any way reincarnation. And if you somehow have bought into that, you believe something the Bible does not teach. You are not coming back as a dog or a turkey or a roach or somebody else, King Leopold or, or whatever. I don't know. When you die, that's it. And see, the enemy wants to deceive everyone believing that, you know what, you really don't have to 
engage in Jesus as Messiah now because there's going to be other opportunities. You've heard me say, and I'll say it again, you will either bow to Jesus as your Savior today or you will bow to him as your judge in eternity. I would rather bow to Jesus as my Savior today. Also in this verse, we see that Jesus promised to save the man eternally. He uses the word paradise. That's the word that uh, is really the same as heaven. Uh, Paradise is used in the Garden of Eden, speaking about the, the domain that God has created. Why was paradise closed? was closed because of sin. Jesus has made a way back to God. Jesus is our is our gate. He's our door. He is the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone provides a way back into paradise, heaven, the presence of God. It's only through Christ and Christ alone. He opened the way. Also in this verse, we see that Jesus promised to save this man personally. He said, I say to you, I say to you, You see, the only way a person can be made right with God can have the assurance that when you die, you will be in the presence of the Lord is the through the way and only way of of Christ. You know, Jesus said in John 6, he said, no one comes to the Father, my Father, God. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is saying exclusively, I'm not a way among many, I am exclusively the way to my Father. And unless you come through me, unless my Father even draws you, there is no hope. Jesus made those statements. Jesus said that. And not only does he say it with that personal, I say to you. Why? Because he has the authority to do it. If I said it to you, the only authority I have is the authority of Scripture. And his words. But Jesus has the authority to make the promise, I say to you, today you will be with me in heaven, in, in, the, pre- in, my pres- in the presence of, of, of my Father. But this is what I think is really cool. If he just said, today you will be with me in heaven or paradise, okay, that's, I mean, that's good, right? I'm not, I'm not against that. That's good. But what does he say? Today you will be with me. There is no heaven without Jesus. Heaven is wherever Jesus is. He says you will be with me in paradise. Notice also in this verse, Jesus saved this man immediately, eternally, personally, but also graciously. Here is this criminal on this one side There is nothing this guy can do. He can't do any works. It's too late. He can't join a church. He can't catch up on his giving. All kidding aside, there's nothing he can do. He is nailed to the cross. He's dying. There's nothing he can promise. There's nothing he can perform. He is all practical matters dead. But he did the one thing that God requires, and that is just simplicity to believe. To believe. We are justified. 
Justification is a biblical term that means we are made right with God through faith alone. The Reformation had many themes, and sola fide, which is the the Latin that means by faith alone. That's a cardinal core doctrine of Christianity, that it's through the finished work of Jesus Christ and His work and His work alone that we are made righteous. It's nothing we do, for by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. This man couldn't do anything. It was a gift of God, and what little time he had, and he's running out of time, straining for every breath, I'm sure every syllable that came out of his mouth strained for oxygen. But what did he do? He professed faith in Christ, rebuked sin in that other criminal on the other side, and he spoke up for the purpose of Christ. And the last is that Jesus gave this man assurance. When he said truly, that was an unbreakable vow of what he said. Truly. Jesus said. There's a certainty. Romans 8.16 tells us, where do you get assurance? And I'm sure many of you here today struggle with your assurance that when you, if you were, when you ponder that question, if you were to die today, the next hour, in the moment, do you have the assurance of where your soul would be eternally? And if you are trusting and relying on anything other than faith in Christ alone, if your answer involves church membership or being baptized as an infant or anything other than what Jesus has done, and I receive what his work, his death for my death, I have no other bragging except what Jesus has done. I receive that for me. See, the Bible tells us in Romans 8.16 that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we belong to God. It isn't filling out a card. Some of your church, you know, came forward, you fill out a card, shook the preacher's hand, you know, sat in the front row till after um, Just As I Am was saying eight times, and then they got up and said, okay, this is Tim Campbell. He's, he's now born again a Christian. And that may happen. But let me tell you, walking an aisle, filling out a card, doing all that, stuff doesn't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Think about what this man did. Did he do anything? He didn't do anything. But what he did was the only thing that mattered. He believed in Christ. He received Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, listen to this. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from the 19th century, said, said that Jesus took the convert on the cross with him to paradise as a specimen or a sample of what he meant to do. He seemed to say to all the heavenly powers entering into that glory, I brought a sinner with me, and he's only a sample of the rest that are to come. Can you imagine entering into heaven within moments of when the Messiah entered into heaven? Can you even imagine what, <laughs> I mean, 
words can't even, can't even articulate that. Here's some, here's some quick takeaways for us to remember. It's never too late to turn to Christ. It's never too late to turn to Christ. You may say, you know what, I'm too old. Too old to change my ways. Well, you better change your ways. Because eternity is a long time. No one can ever say, I'm too old to turn to Jesus. Jesus refuses no one. It's not too late to turn to him. Can someone be saved at the last second? Of course. But my friend, I would not depend on that last second. It reminds us also is that even the very worst can be saved. You may think there's somebody that is beyond hope. They will never be saved. I want to ask who's uttered those words because we probably all have. And maybe in our minds we've said, you know what? They're just too far gone. God's long arm of mercy and grace can reach the sinner in the, utter, in the uttermost and the guttermost. I mean, he can don't ever believe that anyone is too far gone to come to saving grace in Christ. Some people might say, well, you know, I'm just going to wait until that final moment. I'm just going to kind of live my life. And then when I get near the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll ask Jesus because I don't want to give up on all the things that I want to do. Let me tell you something. If that's your attitude, you're probably never, ever going to be saved because if you're not serious about God now, you're not going to be serious later. And the last reminder is, that God has made salvation simple so that anyone could be saved. I alluded to this, but let me just hammer it home because we have people have a lot of religious backgrounds. Salvation is not dependent upon receiving the sacraments. This man was not baptized. He didn't receive the Lord's Supper. He didn't go to confession. What did he do? He didn't, he didn't depend on any of that. Salvation is not dependent on even belonging or joining a church. Salvation is certainly independent of any sense of works that I can do to earn God's favor. This man... His hands were nailed. He couldn't do anything. There's only one thing that he could depend on and hope for, and that was the mercy of God. You see, he was receiving justice. Just give me justice. No, 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 no. You don't want justice. You need mercy. We want mercy. Jesus received justice on our behalf. J.C. Ryle again, one of those old writers. And by the way, there's a little booklet that I got some put back there, and it just has a bunch of old writers that has a lot of godly thoughts that I call them a bunch of old dead guys who can write more in a paragraph 
with some of the stuff you'll buy at your local Christian bookstore. And I would encourage you to take it if you read it. Don't take it and use it for a doorstop because you leave it, you take it for somebody else that might would benefit. But if you're a reader and you hunger after God, I'd encourage you to, to take one. But J.C. Ryle, who was one of those old writers, said, listen, do we want proof that salvation is of grace and not of works? Referring to this man, he said, we have it in the case before us. The dying thief was nailed hand and foot to the cross. He could do literally nothing for his own soul. Yet even through Christ's infinite grace, he was saved. No one ever received such a strong assurance as his own forgiveness as this man. All he did was believe. And the moment he believed, he was as much a follower and a disciple of Jesus as Peter, James, John, any of the other disciples. He was in the family of God. Think with me in this statement. Sherry, why don't you come? In just one transforming moment, one moment, this may be your moment today. I don't, I don't know your hearts. Only God does. But in one transforming moment, a man who was not fit to live on earth was made fit to live in heaven. Doesn't matter what you've done. You may have broken every commandment of the Ten Commandments yesterday. Every one of them, you just went right down the line. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, where are you? Where are you today? What side of the cross are you on today? On the one who received Jesus as the Messiah? Or the one that went to hell cursing the very one that could save him for all eternity. Wouldn't that be a horrible thing to go to your dying death cursing God? Hell is a reality. You realize Jesus talked more and made more references to hell than heaven? Let's stand to our feet as we close this morning.